Job chapter 29, I might read a little bit more than the first six verses. Job further continued his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me, when I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, The young men saw me and hid, and the aged men arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking, and they put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, then it blessed me, and when the eyes saw it, then it approved me. In Job chapter 29, he's reflecting. On life before the catastrophe. On life before when all of a sudden all Gehenna broke loose. When all of his sustenance was stolen. When his children were killed. When the disease overtook him. In chapter 29 he recalls the blessing and benefits of the past. And by the way in chapter 29 or actually the next chapter, chapter 30, he laments his sufferings in the present. And in chapter 31 he he will once again call on God to vindicate him or justify him. What was life like for Job before the sudden loss of wealth? And the sudden loss of his children. And the sudden loss of his health. Again, prior to the events of chapters 1 and 2, Job's life was a life that was guided by God. By his light and love. There was a sense of his intimate presence and blessing. The Lord was in fact a hedge of protection and blessing and prosperity. And Job remembers the honor and the respect that he once enjoyed, his ministry to the poor, his commitments to righteousness and justice, his assistance to the blind, his help toward the needy, his ministry to strangers. He once had a body that was strong and energetic. His counsel was valued. As a matter of fact, when he showed up, he brought hope to others. And few people live their lives absent tragedy, absent calamity. For many of us, we can understand and relate to what Job is saying. We know about life before we were fired and after we were fired, before the diagnosis of sickness, before the crisis, whatever it was, and after the crisis. And it makes perfect sense to us that a crisis can bring about a loss of health, a loss of wealth, a fracture in relationship. We know that life happens. We know that loved ones die. We know that sometimes our children become sick. We know that sometimes we could lose our job. 
We want our lives to return to the place of health and happiness and wholeness. We want a fresh start. We want a new beginning. And where can we find help? And where can we find comfort? And where can we find hope? And so each and every one of us are painfully aware of what Job is saying. Job is saying what you and I would say. I just want life to go back to the way it was. And Job is near his wit's end. Job wonders whether or not he can stand one more day of pain. One more day of ridicule. One more day of difficulty. For Job, the days begin and end in isolation, in rejection. In false accusation. And so Job remembers. Job remembers God's treatment before the days of difficulty. Job remembers when when the Lord was there. And when he sensed his presence. You know we sang that song. Lord I know that you're there even if I don't sense your presence. But remember... We we live in a world where, where many people don't really believe that. They live in a world where you are dictated by your feelings. If you feel alone, you are alone. If you feel hurt, you are hurt. If you feel a particular way or a certain way, and it's hard for faith to well up inside of you and wonder whether or not the promises of God are really true. Job remembers God's just treatment, the days of prosperity, the days of fellowship, the day when his children were present, the day when it seemed like all of his prayers were answered. And can you imagine living a life where, like Job, everything you did turned to gold. When he opened his mouth, people smiled. They loved him and sought him out. And so look again in verses 1 and 2. The longing for care and protection in verses 1 through 6. It says, Job further continued his discourse. Remember, it started in chapter 28 and said, Some, Job further continues his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months past, as in the days when God watched over me. Again, here we have a tiny little clue that more than weeks have passed, months have gone by. Since he's lost his wealth, since he's lost his children, since he's lost his health. And some suggested that Job may have paused and waited for Zophar or the others to respond. At the end of chapter 28, in the beginning of verse 29, when it says, Job further continued his discourse. The idea being, there was one of those pregnant pauses. One of those long silences after chapter 28 where he's waiting and wondering if anyone is going to respond to what he has just said. Job has already admitted, remember in chapter 3, I wish I was dead. For those of you who have been following along in our study, you remember that on more than one occasion, because of the overwhelming pain and problem and issues that he's facing, he's, he, he's contemplating, 
a life where he doesn't have life anymore. But now Job remembers his life in a little more balanced fashion. If you've ever been around a person who wanted to take their life, or if you yourself have ever been a person who wanted to take your life, you know that sometimes you can wake up and the pain is so overwhelming and the isolation is so overwhelming or the hurt or whatever it is that you're going through is so overwhelming, you sort of misjudge your life. You begin to define your life only in terms of the ridicule, the pain, the loss, the difficulty. Job is at least now moving along the spectrum. He's remembering what it was like before the catastrophe, before the crisis. Life is usually a mixture of joy and victory, of loss and sorrow. Can you imagine me a Cubs fan (laughs) and having to try and root for that team? Week after week and month after month and year after year. I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, it's really, really hard to root for a team that rarely wins. Job said in chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? Spurgeon wrote that too many people write their blessings in sand. But they engrave their sorrows in marble. I like that. We write our blessings in the sand. And when the ocean comes and wipes away the blessings, we think that the blessings disappear. We remember the pain and the sorrow with such bitterness and hardness. It makes sense that we would long for the good old days. But I think most of you already know that when you're faced with a crisis, when you're faced with pain, and when you're faced with a catastrophe, longing for the good old days isn't always that helpful. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Someone has defined the good old days as a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination, unquote. That's true, huh? Sometimes we think, oh, do you remember those good old days? In Job's case, his memory was accurate. And the good old days really were good. He was loved and he was respected. Memory can serve two functions. One helpful and one harmful. In the Bible... You'll remember that the thief on the cross told Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom in Luke 23, 42. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 14, a worker said, Remember me, O God, concerning this, and wipe not out all of the good deeds. In Psalm 25, 7, the psalmist wrote, Remember me according to the greatness of your mercy. There is a time when memory serves the useful function of Will you recall when God was good, when God answered the prayers, when you sensed his presence and you sensed his love and you experienced forgiveness and hope? In the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, the word remember is found some 14 times. You know what's interesting about that? The word forget appears nine times in the book of Deuteronomy. Sometimes... 
it's important to remember. And sometimes it's important to forget. In the days of deep discouragement and disappointment, it's good to remember the days of goodness. Again, Wiersbe writes, but the past must not be a rudder to guide us. He says, but the past must be a rudder to guide us and not an anchor to hold us back. If we try to duplicate today what we experienced yesterday, we may find ourselves in a rut that robs us of maturity. The point being this, that this reflection on times of good and not remembering times of need can give us an imbalanced perception. In verse 3, Job says, When his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness. In this case, Job's longing for care and protection is at the top of the list. He is the care and the protection that he longs for appropriate? I think that the answer is yes. But the care and the, the longing and the protection that he hopes for begins in his own home. So when it says, when his lamp shone upon my head, that means the light of the lamp of the presence and the goodness of God. The idea being the presence of God brought understanding and brought hope. And what's interesting to me too is when Job longs for life the way that it used to be. The way that life was, that it used to be, was care and protection and love in the home. The reason why this becomes important for you and me is because that's what he's remembering. He's remembering what it was like to love and serve the Lord in his home. His home was a place where God was honored. Where the Lord was glorified. You know, this last week I interviewed one of Billy Graham's grandchildren on my radio program. And she talked about being at home with Daddy Billy. That's what his grandchildren call him. And they talked about how... <laughs> Billy Graham has a lot of grandchildren. And then he was fond of saying to each one of them, you know, you're my favorite. One of the grandchildren said, I thought he, that I really was his favorite. And then I discovered that he says that to each and every one of them. And I said to his granddaughter, and what's really interesting, he really meant it each and every time. They were left with this powerful sense that, that they were loved and they were cared about in their home. Billy Graham wasn't just a famous person who wrote books or who showed up on TV. That when you went to grandpa's house, this was a house where, where grandpa loved grandma and he loved his children and he cared for real about the Lord. And so the thing that he longs for is the thing that he had. The sense of God's presence, honoring God's presence in the home. And in verse 4 it says, Just as I was in the days of my prime when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent. The idea being when I was young. 
when I was in the most physically fit days of my life, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, it was as if the wisdom of God and the honor of God was like a light over his home. Who doesn't long for their prime? I know many of you have yet to see your prime. And for some of you, it was a long time ago. Who doesn't long for their prime? Again, Wiersbe says, if we focus so much on the glories of the past that we ignore the opportunities in the present, we may end up unprepared for the future. And so, again, before the crisis and after the crisis, if it's a physical or a financial or a personal difficulty, sometimes we go back to that place that was the height of our intellectual ability or the height of our beauty or the height of our ability to earn whatever it is. Most of you are familiar with the old never die jokes. You know, old academics never die, they just lose their faculties. Old accountants never die. They just lose their balance. Old accounts never die. They're just deleted. Old actors never die. They just drop apart. Old alcoholics or addicts never die. They just get wasted. Old anthropologists never die. They just become history. Old archers never die. They just bow and quiver. Old architects never die. They just lose their structure. Old assets never die. They just depreciate. Old astronauts never die. They just go to another world. Old atoms never die. They just decay. And that's just the A's. So what does it mean? Well, we can talk about the value of youth. Someone once said, To know how to grow old is the master work of wisdom. And one of the most difficult chapters in the great art of living is how to go forward in maturity. And so Job is longing for what we all long for. He says in verse 5, when the Almighty was yet with me, When my children were all around me, when my steps were bathed with cream and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. The NIV puts it this way, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out streams of olive oil. The expression is an idiomatic expression, a metaphor for blessing and wealth and success. That's part of the point that he's making. And remember, Zophar had said, hey, look, look, if you'll just do, if you'll just repent of your sin, if you'll just return to the Lord, then guess what? Everything will be good for you. Blessing and success will return to you if you'll just do what needs to be done. But remember, he doesn't, he isn't willing to repent of something that he he doesn't think was ever wrong. He talks about the longing not only for the life that he used to have, but now for 
honor and respect. In verses 7 through 11, it says, When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took up my seat in the open square, this longing for honor and respect, Job occupies the position of leadership. By the way, in the ancient world, when you lived in a city, the people would gather near the gates of the city. The gates were the place of protection. But the gates were also the place where the city elders would come. This is where court was held. This is where problems were solved and conflicts resolved. And so Job occupies this place of leadership. It says in verse 8, The young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking, and they put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. The idea being, in all of these situations... It would appear that Job has a public ministry and he's held in the highest esteem. In other words, the idea being, hey, there was a time when Job showed up and the old men rose up to shake his hand and the young men got out of his way. The city officials were respectful. Everyone stopped what they were doing. If Job showed up, And if Job had anything to say, it was the one thing that people wanted to hear. And by the way, I think the same is true in every civilized society. When people are held in esteem. No matter what your position is or what your field of expertise, whether it's political or social or athletic, whether it deals with whatever it happens to deal with, usually when you come to that place in your own life where people go, hey, look, look who's here. Let's listen to what he or she has to say. In verse 11 it says, when the ear heard, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw, then it approved me. The idea being, when, when I spoke, people were willing to listen Job describes a time of honor and respect. He's talking about a time when he occupied the place of judgment. He took his place with the leaders and the movers and the shakers. When he showed up, people stopped talking and everyone started listening. That's the idea in verse 11 when it says, Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me. The idea being there was a time when people would ask the question, Well, what do you think of Job? And they would say, He's wise and helpful, insightful. And he longs, For the time of fruitful and effective ministry. Look again in verses 12 through 17. He says, because I delivered the poor who cried out. The fatherless and the one who had no helper. Remember, he's been accused of not being a champion of the poor. Of taking advantage of the poor. Of neglecting the poor. He says it's not true. There was a time when he had an effective ministry and a fruitful ministry to people who were, in, who were in trouble and people who needed help. He says in verse 13, the blessing of a perishing man 
came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. I was father to the poor and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and I plucked the victim from his teeth. Here's the idea. Job rescued the needy in verses 12 and 13. Before his wealth was stolen, he used his considerable wealth to minister to the poor, to help the widows and the orphans. Remember, these were the people who were the most vulnerable, the people who were most at risk. These were the people who were the most defenseless. The reason he feared God. He saw God as the source of his wealth. Job knew that God had given him everything. And therefore he was generous to the needy. And to the destitute. And to the dying. Can you see now why people liken this particular passage. Where the Proverbs 31 woman. What kind of a woman is she? The Job chapter 29 kind of a guy. This is the kind of guy who, is, who, who should have a fruitful, effective ministry. Job set the example of justice and righteousness and championed the cause of the needy in verses 14 through 17. That's the idea. He's a father to the poor. He's a father to the needy. And here's the idea. He comes to the gate and the poor and the needy are helpless and they need justice. And so who do they go to? They go to Job. And the reason why they go to Job is because they know with Job, they're going to have a fair hearing. They know that that he's going to listen with compassion and sensitivity and help. The idea seems to be that he was an advocate as a judge and a public official. He stood against the wicked oppressors. That's what it means in verse 17 when it says, I broke the fangs of the wicked. Who are the fang? What are the fangs? It's all of the evil of the wicked who wants to take advantage of the defenseless. And so here is the idea that he takes out the fangs, or because he's a champion of the poor and the needy, he will use his influence to make the weak and the defenseless receive fair treatment. He doesn't just care about theological things, he doesn't just care about being right. He doesn't just care about being respected. He's living in a world where he understands that unless everyone is respected, unless everyone is given proper treatment, then, then this is not the world that he wants to live in. Part of the point of the passage is that he cares and has compassion. And the reason why he cares and has compassion is because he loves the Lord. He loves and knows the Lord. And so Job is joining these two ideas together that a real knowledge of God and a real care for God is going to result in a real knowledge of and care for what the things that the Lord cares for. And that he cares about the poor and he cares about the needy. Loving the Lord and caring for the needy go hand In hand. You'll remember when Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength in Matthew 22. 
And then later he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, all of the law and the prophets hang. John repeats it in 1 John when he says, how can you say that you love God who you don't see and hate your brother who you do see? In the world of Job and in the world of Jesus and in the world of John, if your theology didn't actually express itself in the very real way that you care about people, this is disconnected. And so the connection is made between the two. James says, if there come into your assembly one who has a gold ring or uh, in goodly apparel, think $5,000 Italian suits. And you say, here, here's a great place of honor. Come and take this place. And then there comes a poor man in vile raiment. And you have respect to him that has the wealth and the gay clothing. This is the old King James. Gay clothing in the old King James doesn't mean same-sex attraction. It doesn't mean that you have vibrant colors and that kind of thing. In those days, it meant festive apparel. Sorry, I even had to explain that. But the word gay has changed over the years. And, and so that's why you have updated Bible versions. So, to make a long story short, you say to the rich guy, hey, sit in this great place. You say to the poor guy, hey, sit here under my footstool. Have you yourselves not become judges with evil thoughts? James writes, hearken, my beloved brethren. Has God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them who love him? Again, the reoccurring theme. What you think, how you act towards people, whether rich or poor, matters. In Psalms 29, 14, the king that faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. The idea, though, is has there been a king who has been faithful and just and impartial, both to rich and poor? The obvious selection of the righteous king, the one who is completely without hypocrisy, the one who is completely fair and just is the person of Jesus. But Job's remembering Job's remembering what it was like to genuinely love and care, not only about the Lord, but but for the people that the Lord loves. And then there's this longing for a hope-filled future. In verse 18 through 20, he says, Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and the dew lines all All night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me. And my bow is renewed in my hand. These are images of blessing. And being a blessing. So when he says. Then I shall die in my my nest. It's an idiomatic expression. Way of saying. In my home. I thought my home would always be my home. That this would be the place of safety. That this would be the place of security. This would be the place where here's your mother and here's your father and here's your grandmother and grandfather. These are your aunts and uncles. This is the place where you're respected and loved and cared for. So he said, I had every reason to believe that I was going to grow old. 
with all of the blessings that I always had. He was confident that he would stay healthy. He was confident that he would live to an old age. He was confident that he would die in peace. He saw himself as a deeply rooted tree that would go on producing fruit. He had no reason to believe, hey, guess what? I employ a lot of people. A lot of people have a job because of me, because of this and because of that. Children are sometimes seen as the arrows and blessings. And so here when he talks about my glory is fresh within me and my bow is renewed in my hand, the picture is a picture of physical fitness. The picture is a picture of being strong and healthy and able to continue to have children like Abraham type ages of having children. Job wanted to live a long life surrounded by his family in verse 18. Job wanted to live a long and prosperous life in verse 19. Job wanted to live an honorable and glorious life in verse 20. And who doesn't? Who doesn't? Who doesn't want their life to matter, to be meaningful, to have value? When you ask and you answer the question, and you think about your life, and then you think about the life that you imagined you would have, and then the, the life that you, that you now have, we sometimes take our job for granted, or health for granted, our freedom for granted. Can your wealth disappear quite easily? The answer is yes. Is it possible that you could receive a diagnosis that you never anticipated? The answer is yes. Is it possible that the person that you married in your youth doesn't survive with you into your old age? All of those things are possible. Tragedy and misfortune can happen at any time. And the word of God teaches that long life and prosperity and good health and peace of mind and a strong heart in old age. That if you manage to retain life and prosperity and good health and peace of mind, all of those things are blessings. But they're not guarantees. And if we do have them, we should thank God for them every single day. We should thank God for our wives and our, our husbands and our children and, and the blessings that we have and the jobs that we have and whatever meaningful contributions we get to make. But what if we don't? What then? What happens if you lose your job? What happens if you lose your freedom? What, what happens if you lose a child? What happens if you lose a friend? What happens if the worst thing imaginable overtakes your life? What then? And Job is challenging us. How can I trust God? And how can I believe God? And how am I willing to say, even if you slay me, yet will I serve you. That I'm not going to make my decision, my relationship and my friendship and my fellowship with God isn't based on the presence or the absence of blessing. 
What happens if it doesn't work out? What happens if our health, our freedom, or our wealth are deprived? Will we do what the Bible says? Will we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Will we understand that the thief comes to rob and kill and destroy? Will we believe that Jesus is real and Lord in the midst of the most painful of circumstances? We know that Jesus has come. That we might have life and have it more abundantly. Job not only longs for a hope-filled future. Because he thinks that the hope-filled future is gone. But he wants to return to that. He wants to return to the time in his life where he woke up every day in confident expectation that things were just going to get better and better. And then look at what else he writes. The longing for the privilege to counsel and encourage others. In verses 21 through 25, listen to what he says. He says, men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. In verse 22, when he says, after my words, they did not speak again. The idea being, Job has finished speaking on this subject. Job is the last word on this subject. You know, there might be people in your life who you have met, whether it's a physician or a surgeon or a financial advisor. And typically when somebody opens up their mouth like a Warren Buffett and he goes, okay, who is the last word in investment? Who is the last word in health? Who is the last word in these particular things? In our culture and society, it's Dr. Phil and Oprah. Well, you know, Dr. Phil has said this and Oprah has said that. Well, if Oprah said it, then it must be true. In Job's life, I I don't even know if I should even go there, but he was kind of the Oprah and Dr. Phil all rolled into one. People went to him, talked to him, listened to him, valued his speech. Look at in verse 23. They waited for me as for the rain. It was raining when we came here this evening. Remember what the rain does. It cleanses the sky and it brings a sense of refreshment. That's what he's saying. They waited for me as for the rain. In a dry, empty place. And they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. When Job spoke, it was fresh water in a dry desert. When he smiled, everyone smiled. We have an idiomatic expression in our own culture. Have you ever heard someone say, hey, when she comes into the room, her smile lights up the whole room. That's what I say about my grandchildren. She comes into the room and she smiles. My heart melts and everything is right in the world. That's the idea. He had the kind of smile that lights up the room. In verse 24 it says, If I mocked at them, they did not believe it. Do you you understand what he's saying? The idea is saying, when when he's mocking, it's not for real. It's a joke. In other words, if... If Job, if you were in the room with Job and he sort of elbowed you and told a joke, you go, oh, you're just kidding, right? 
That's the idea. He said, and the light of my countenance they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. Job's life was a life of righteousness and prosperity, piety, justice, fame, generosity. Here's the idea, too. But now no one would talk to him. No one would have anything to do with him. Think of some of the most famous people that you know who have went from the very pinnacle of success. Think of somebody like O.J. Simpson, who is an incredible athlete, star, movie star, and then he's tried for murder, and he's exonerated by a jury of his peers. He is found not guilty of what everyone in the world knows is guilt. How many of you, given the opportunity to have a celebrity lunch with OJ, would take it? Oh, there's no hands in the house. Nobody wants to hang out with a person who's gone from the very top to the very bottom. Job's life is in the dump. Job's life is destitute. Job is in need of help. And everyone who respects him now doesn't respect him. How is it that Job, who once provided so much help to so many people and provided so much hope to so many people, is now unable to receive it? His counsel was valued in verse 21. His counsel was gentle and truly helpful in verse 22. His counsel was coveted and heeded. It was longed for and listened to in verse 23. His counsel, his smile, the light of his face encouraged everyone around them. Gave comfort to the people. Gave hope to the people. His counsel helped people make wise decisions. His counsel provided comfort. His counsel provided hope. He once defended the poor and the needy. And now he is the poor and the needy. We sometimes forget those of us who are in the business of helping people. That offering comfort and offering counsel is a great privilege. We who are tasked with the business of helping others understand that it's temporary. That the time may come when the people who used to seek your advice will no longer seek your advice. When the people who seek your wisdom will no longer seek your wisdom. We pray. We speak. We offer hope. We offer comfort. We point people to Jesus. We point them to the revelation of God. We point 
to them the reality of the comfort and the hope that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that God's will and God's plan and God's purposes are in Christ. We help people find solutions in God's revelation. Job describes joy, the joy of the presence of God in his home. And he goes, I want it back. Job describes the joy of respect from others, and he wants it back. Job describes the joy of ministering to others, and he wants it back. Joy, Job describes the joy of confidence in the future. And he wants it back. Job describes that in the end, he used to trust that everything would work out just fine. And he wants that sense of confidence back. Job speaks of the joy of being a source of blessing. And a source of encouragement. And he wants that back. In the popular culture, people understand the damage that's caused by sin. Even when they don't want to admit to sin. You know, I was thinking of a song. There was a very famous artist who I kind of grew up with. She was already old when I was young. Some of you are old enough to remember Sonny and Cher. And they would sing, you know, I Got You, Babe. And... In the 1960s, here is this young, beautiful Cher. And then in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in 2000, and now it's 2014. How many of you know how old Cher is? Anybody? She's like 70. But she dresses like she's 16. She sings a song. Let's see if some of you know it. She sings a song that goes, If I could turn back time... If I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you and you'd stay. I don't know why I did the things I did. I don't know why I said the things I said. Pride's like a knife. It can cut cut deep inside. Words are like weapons. They wound sometimes. I didn't really mean to hurt you. I didn't want to see you go. I know I made you cry, but baby, and then it says, if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back the words that hurt you, and you'd say, if I could reach the stars, I'd give them all to you, then you'd love me, love me like you used to do. If I could turn back time. And Job wants to turn back time. He wants it to be a different world. There was a German reformer named Gerhard Terstegen. He lived in the early 1700s and the mid-1700s. He wrote, quote, As long as we want to be different from what God wants us to be at the time, we are only tormenting ourselves 
to no purpose. It was his way of saying, if we want to turn back time and become something that we used to be or could be or want to be, and Job doesn't want to turn back time because he made a mistake or because he did something wrong. It was the right thing for him to love his family. It was the right thing to love the Lord. It was the right thing to minister to his children. It was the right thing to minister to his neighbors. It was the right thing to have hope. It was a right thing to trust the Lord. It was the right thing to have confidence And he still doesn't understand why all this has happened and what's going to become of him. You see, this is why I keep telling you when we're studying this book, you are at a distinct advantage. You know how the story began. And for those of you bold enough to read the end, you know how the story is going to end. God's going to show up. And for those of you who want things to be the way that they used to be, it will always be a mistake if what you want is different from what God has wanted all along. Your love, your trust, your relationship, your fellowship, your confidence. Cher Sung ends this way. My world was shattered. I was torn apart. Like someone took a knife and drove it, it, it deep in my heart. You walked out the door. I swore that I didn't care. But I lost everything, darling. Then and there. Too strong to tell you I was sorry. Too proud to tell you I was wrong. I know that I was blind. Job isn't sorry. And Job isn't wrong. And Job isn't blind. Oddly enough, he's the only one who sees clearly. And he wants his life in the Lord to be the way that it used to be. You know, maybe some of you have embarked on a journey away from God, away from Christ away from his love, away from his confidence. I'm here to tell you that that's not going to work out for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, as we read this book and as we hear Job's heart, Lord, we pray that, again, our confidence in you would continue to grow. Lord, we pray that our compassion and sensitivity for those who are hurt and those who are lost and those who have been taken advantage of and those who have been isolated and rejected and drawn out beside the circle. Lord, we pray that we would once again remind ourselves that it doesn't make sense to love you and not love the things that you love. That if we say that we love you 
And we say that we want to serve you. And we say that we care about you. That we would love and say and care about the things that you care about. And the reoccurring theme and the ever-present message is to love you and to love each other and to care for the sick, the needy, the poor, the isolated, the hurt, the forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.